welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. We start with a question. So we get into our text in Mark. We're, we're continuing our study in Mark. We're going to uh, wrap this series up right at Christmas. This is going to carry us right through to Christmas. And as we continue the series, I want to just start this morning with a question, just to kind of awaken our thinking about things. And the question is this. You can answer this if you're, uh, if you're joining on, online. You can uh, type your answer into our chat box, depending on which platform you're using. There's various chat features there, but you can type it in. Uh, and then it'll actually appear right here on my screen. Um, and if you're on campus, you can just call it out. But the question is this. It is, um, why does the church exist? Why does the church exist? And that's not a trick question. I know on the surface that may seem like a trick question. But it's not. It's, it's, just, not an, it's just not a question with an easy answer because it's not, it's not a, a singular answer. The church is multifaceted. The reason the church exists in the world and the things we're called to be and then to do is very multifaceted. So there's not one answer. There's many right answers. But let's just get a few on the table this morning. So what would you say? If I was to say to you, why does the church exist? What would you say? To bring glory to God. God. Amen. What's that? Encourage believers. Absolutely. Encourage, equip believers. Online, we have this care for the poor. Yes. Teach about Jesus. Learn about Jesus. Grow about Jesus together. Yes. To spur one another on to love and good deeds. That's biblical right there. Teaching. We've got teaching is online. Light to the world. Yes. To multiply... to go out and to multiply and to teach his word. What was, I saw a hand over here. Light and salt. To be light and salt, yes. To continue, to continue the faith of the Lord, yes. Yes, Harry. To celebrate. To fellowship with God and with family. To gather and worship Christ. We have online, we say gather and worship Christ. To be the hands and feet of Jesus. Yeah. To demonstrate the eternal kingdom. Okay, we're going to be a training center, yes. We're going to do one more on campus and one more online. To be ambassadors for the kingdom of God in this earth. Yes, Laura. What else we got? One more online. And while we're waiting, oh, learn about God's word. Yes. All those are right answers. Yes and amen. Okay? Nobody, nobody got buzzed. Nobody gets a red check mark. Today we're going to be looking at one facet of why the church exists that was very important to Jesus. And I, I want us to catch this because this was so important to Jesus that in the final moments of his earthly life, when he knew what was going to happen within the next few days, when he was steadfastly moving towards the cross with his, with his face set towards the cross, 
that this was something that was on his heart and mind. This was occupying his, his thoughts and his attention. Not only that, not only was it at the forefront of his mind and heart in the final days leading up to his crucifixion, it's also one of the significant outcomes of his death and resurrection. This is one of the things that he died and rose to accomplish. We're going to be looking at that today, and it's this. Today, our, our, our message is follow me into being a church for others. A church for others. Chapter 11, we're going to be in, in, in Mark chapter 11 today. It begins a new section of the book of Mark in which Jesus and his 12 uh, and the, the broader crowd of disciples that are traveling with him, they reach Jerusalem. And we've been watching them move towards Jerusalem for, for a few chapters now. They finally arrive there. And, um, and this is the beginning of what we call the Passion Week, which means it's the final, the final week of Jesus' life is the Passion Week. And so it, it, it begins at the beginning of the week and moves towards his crucifixion on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday. And so that's the week that we're in right now. Um, today, we're going to see Jesus make three consecutive visits on three consecutive days, not just to Jerusalem specifically, but to the temple. Okay, the temple is, is encapsulated in Jerusalem. We're going to see that today. Um, three consecutive visits, three consecutive days. Here's the thing, though. In addition to, to being the Passion Week, final week of Jesus' life, it's also the Passover week. Okay, so two, two Ps as far as the weeks. Passion Week, Jesus' life, Passover, which is very significant in the life of Israel. Passover is, is one of their significant religious holidays, probably the most visible, um, if you were to categorize them, per perhaps the most important. And so during Passover week, uh, pilgrims from all over the, the known world, from all over the Roman Empire, the known world, Jewish pilgrims would come to Jerusalem, descend on Jerusalem, because they wanted to observe the Passover feast in Jerusalem near the temple. Okay? So at this time, uh, the population of Jerusalem would swell with, with all kinds of visitors. Also present, though, would be uh, additional Roman troops. Okay? This time, Israel was occupied by the Romans. They're part of the Roman Empire. They'd been conquered. And, and, and Rome would actually send additional troops to Jerusalem to be stationed during this time because they wanted to be able to squash any sort of uprising. And the reason why is that during Passover, there was this awakened hope of what God was going to do to set them free from their oppressors. Passover, in its, in its origins, it celebrated something that had happened some 1,400 or more years ago. And that was the, the, uh, the deliverance of the people of Israel from Pharaoh and Egypt. So when you read about that story in Exodus with the 10 plagues and how Moses called the people to, to come out into the wilderness to, to worship God and to become a people unique to him, that, was, that happened some 1,400 to 1,500 years previous to this. Ever since then, they've observed the feast of the Passover. And what they do is they tell the story, they, they enact the story of the first Passover, but not just in order to celebrate what happened in the past, not only because they want to remember it, but because it awakens anticipation and faith that God will do it again. You know, we've been singing that song, what you did before, come and do once more. Passover was kind of their song like that. They, they would tell the story of what God did in the past with anticipation he would do it again. And so in this day, when, in Jesus' day, they, they, would, they would observe Passover with the hope that God was going to deliver them from their Roman oppressors. Okay? So let's turn to Mark chapter 11 and see what happens. Mark 11, 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, the they being Jesus and his disciples, they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany, 
at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. Okay, let's talk about this this word colt here. The word colt in this text can, be, um, can refer to either a horse or to a donkey, to the, the, the foal, the young, the young version of either a horse or a donkey. But in Matthew 21, it specifies, it tells also this story. Matthew 21 specifies that this was the, the foal of a donkey. Okay? So I want you to note that this is Jesus' chosen ride. Okay? He did not, it's not as if Jesus, um, you know, ordered an Uber, and this is simply what they sent, right? The donkey was the nearest thing, and so that's what he got. He chose this. He selected this. This was very deliberate. And that matters because at this moment, Jesus is a celebrity of sorts. He's a, he's a religious celebrity, a messianic celebrity, a royal celebrity. And this is effectively, it's, it's the moment he's about to make his grand entrance to Jerusalem. We're about to see as we get into the text, this is a red carpet moment. And if you think about royal figures or celebrities when there's a red carpet moment, it's an arrival, right? What, what, what they show up in matters. It makes a statement, right? So what do, so I Googled, okay, I just Googled this week, red carpet arrival. Here's one of the first pictures that popped up. There it is. It's something fancy, something shiny, something that makes a statement, something that's special. But for Jesus' red carpet arrival, he orders a, a donkey, a young donkey that's not even broken, broken in, I should say. So this is an intentional statement. It's intentional, but it's not impressive. Okay? A donkey is not an impressive ride, is it? If Jesus wanted to make an impressive statement in his day, the, the vehicle of choice, the animal of choice, would be a war horse that, would, that had seen battle, right? One that was seasoned. It would be a war horse or maybe it would be a chariot. This is the days of Rome. It could be a chariot. It's a little bit like in our day, it's, it's choosing a Prius instead of a Hummer. It's just not very intimidating. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not very intimidating. It's not threatening. If you want to make a military statement, you roll into town in an H2 Hummer, or maybe you roll in in the stretch Escalade, and you've got the guys in black with sunglasses and earpieces running next to you, right? That makes a statement. Jesus chooses the very opposite of a military statement. Instead, he chooses a humble young donkey. Let's go to verse four. They went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Verse eight, and many spread their cloaks on the road. Okay, think about this for a minute. This is a dirty dirt road in Jerusalem, in Rome. People are putting their coats down. Okay, this is not a typical thing. This was not part of their culture for just a, an everyday event. This is, this is their equivalent of a red carpet treatment, okay? Many spread their cloaks on the road. Others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. 
And those who went before and those who followed were shouting. They were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Well, Brent talked to us about Jesus being identified as the root of David. They're leaning into their, their past with anticipation of what it means for their future. This is the royal welcome to Jesus or to, to Jerusalem. This is how they would welcome a conquering king. Only as they welcome Jesus, they're, they're giving him the welcome of a conquering king, but it's not in celebration that he's already accomplished a victory. It's in anticipation of what he's about to do. Right? They, they're, and, and it says that they're shouting. What they're, what they're shouting is, is actually lines from Psalm 118. During this time, there was a collection of psalms. Kind of like at, at Christmas time, we have a collection of songs that we sing. We sing Christmas carols, right? They had a collection of songs that they sang every year at Passover. They, and they were the, the psalms of ascent. And so you can find one of them was Psalm 118. And so they're singing this, but they're not just kind of casually singing it. Silent night. They're, they are singing exuberantly because this is about to happen. This thing that we've been talking about and celebrating and remembering, it's happening. They're very excited. But there's just this little disconnect. This little disconnect between their welcome and their expectations and Jesus' chosen ride. They're singing at the top of their lungs, but in the back of their minds, they're thinking, it's kind of an odd choice, isn't it? It's an unbroken donkey? I don't but here's the thing. Jesus chose it, and here's why. And this is so important for us to, to grasp as followers of Jesus some 2,000 years later. He chose it because it speaks of the fact that his ways are different than human ways. The people were longing for God's rule to be established. They expected it to be accomplished with the ways that they were familiar with. They were familiar with, with victory over enemies being accomplished through might, through power, through strength, through strategy, through force, through military defeat. They expected it to come through beating their enemies into submission and defeat. But Jesus is doing something that from a human perspective seems very upside down. We would say it's not upside down, it's just right side up. It's just that we're so upside down we don't recognize it. He's doing something that is so different that it seems upside down. He's not coming in war. He didn't choose a vehicle of war. He chose a vehicle of peace. And here's the thing, and this is key. He's not coming to take the lives of their enemies. He's coming to give his life for his enemies. Let me repeat that. He's not coming to take the lives of their enemies. He's coming to give his own life for his enemies. I want to say that we need to remember this in our time as we too are longing for things to be different. One of the things we do as a people is we gather to tell the stories of what God's done in the past in order to awaken hope for what he will do today and in the future, right? We do the same thing they did. We're supposed to do that. But we need to remember that the way that Jesus accomplishes victory is not according to human means. As we experience the fallenness in our world and the longing for change, I, I don't know about you, but this week, you know, we, we hear stories all the time about what's going on in the world. We're inundated with stories of the brokenness of our world breaking into, to, into the human existence. 
And sometimes it comes really close. It comes really close when there's a, a violent shooting in our city, multiple violent shootings in our city. It comes close in, in the loss of loved ones to, to COVID. We had two families just this week that, that lost loved ones to COVID. When it comes close and we feel it, it awakens this groaning, this longing. We sang about it in that song this morning, is all of creation groaning? It is. And, and, and in their day, they were groaning under the, under the Roman oppression and they wanted Jesus to do something different. Their expectation of how he was going to do it was not the way he was going to accomplish it. Make no mistake, Jesus was going to accomplish victory. He did accomplish victory, and he will finish it. But he didn't use the human tools. As followers of Jesus, we are called to follow him by resisting the urge to pick up the tools and the ways of human conflict and to instead lay down our own lives in love, even for our enemies. I want you to hear that. We are called to lay down our lives in love, even for our enemies. We must resist the name-calling, the picking up of weapons, and the demonizing of other people groups as enemies. Jesus just didn't do that. He came and he, we, we see Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He prayed for his enemies as they were crucifying. This is, the, this is the Jesus that we follow. This is the Jesus we sing about so exuberantly. Are we singing about the real Jesus or one that we've made up in our own minds, the Jesus we've fashioned in, in the image we want him to be? There's an us versus them mentality that's so very popular in our world and even among those who claim the name of Jesus. And I want to suggest that when we turn someone else into an enemy, when we vilify them, that we are distorting the image of Jesus. Because in this moment, who we see him be, what we see him do, we see him lay down his life for others. The way he accomplished victory was not through human weapons. We see that same paradox actually in the, the, uh, the song. You know, we sang that song this morning. Is that, that song is rooted, the last song we did, Is He Worthy? It's rooted in Revelation chapter five. This is some homework. We're not gonna go there right now. But this is homework for you. Go read Revelation chapter 5 today. And let me just give you a little bit of context to help you understand it if you're not familiar with Revelation. Revelation is, is, a, is a visual, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's filled with imagery because it's a dream that God gave to John. So Peter, James, and John. John was banished to the island of Patmos near, and near the end of his life, some 50 years after Jesus' resurrection, John is an old man. He's been banished. It's, it's the day that they should be gathering for worship and he's banished as a prisoner on an island. And on that day, what, would, what for us would be a Sunday, he, on the day of worship, God gives him a vision. He writes it down. And in the vision, the scroll that is, is talked about, that we sang about this morning, the scroll represents God's will. The will of the king. The will of the king is, is captured in, in the scroll and it's sealed with his you know, his signet ring. And an angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll so that we can know what it says, so, that, so who, can, who can proclaim it to the world and who can see it rolled out? And initially, no one is worthy. No one is able to accomplish the will of the king, to see the kingdom come and his will be done. No one's worthy. And John is devastated by that. In his dream, he gets very emotional. And so he's weeping. And then somebody says, oh, wait, hold on. 
there actually is someone worthy. There's someone who can open, the, who can proclaim what God's will is, who can know what his will is, who can proclaim it to the world, and who can see it accomplished. And it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, which, of course, it's the lion, right? The king of all the animals, the strongest of all the beasts, the terror of the jungle. But of course, it's a lion. And so John's excited, and he turns to look to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he sees a lamb that's been slain. And the message is that Jesus did not conquer in the way that we expected him to. He conquered through self-sacrificial love. Church, as we awaken hope, and as we say, we, as we groan and long for the world to change, we must remember that we follow a lamb that was slain in self-sacrificial love. Let's go to verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Okay, if, this were, if this were a military operation, this is the recon option. This is, this is when he goes in to kind of spy out the land. He comes into the temple and he surveys what's happening, kind of looks around, checks everything out, and he does not react. We're going to find in a moment that he's very bothered by what he witnesses. But he doesn't do anything. He just turns around and leaves. Instead, he leaves with his disciples, spends the night outside of Jerusalem proper in a little town of, a little village of Bethany. It's where his, his good friends, uh, Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus, live. They live in Bethany. So he spends the night with them. This was typically, this is going to be his pattern throughout the Passion Week, is that he would spend the day in Jerusalem proper and spend the night with his friends. That's his pattern. So when he leaves there to go spend the night with his friends, we don't know what he did. Mark doesn't fill that in. He doesn't say, well, so, so Jesus surveyed the temple and then he went out and spent some time in prayer. I'm going to suggest that he probably did because that's, this is the pattern of his week. But we know the pattern of his life. Jesus was always asking the Father, Father, what are you doing? I only want to do what you're doing. And so he doesn't react to the thing that he sees that bothers him. He thinks about it and he, and he formulates a plan. Verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, so they're making their way to Jerusalem, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. <laughs> I love that Mark makes a point of saying, his disciples heard what he said. Okay, so what's happening here? Jesus sees a fig tree that appears to be healthy and productive from a distance. He looks at it, it looks very promising. It's all leafed out, it's all green, it's, it's spring, it's all, and so it looks very promising. And he goes over it, even though he knows, okay, he's the creator. He knows the seasons. He actually built the seasons in when he spoke everything into existence. Seasons are part of creation. He knows that it's, this is, this is intentional, right? He's doing this for his disciples to not only see, but to hear. So he walks over and he looks for fruit. When he comes closer to inspect the, the tree that looks good from a distance, he finds that it has no fruit. It's fruitless. And so he pronounces judgment upon it. Peter will say later that Jesus cursed the tree. 
But his disciples heard it, and I think John emphasizes that they heard it because Jesus made sure that they did. Here's what this means. Jesus wasn't just muttering under his breath and grumbling because he was hangry. This is not just like petulant Jesus who's having a messianic blood sugar crash. No. He walks over with all them watching, searches, wants them to see that he's looking for something that he's not finding, and then he sits back and he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. This is what we would call an enacted parable. Jesus often taught in parables. So many of his parables are him talking about the kingdom of God is a little bit like this. And then he'll grab some sort of metaphor nearby, something that's concrete and tangible they can see. He's talking about a farmer or a seed or a tree or a plant. This is, this is a parable. It's just an enacted one. It's an object lesson for what's about to happen that day and into the future. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem so they, they, they have this interaction with the tree and then they make, keep making their way. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Okay, this is, okay, he didn't react last night. Now he's responding. Very intentionally, very deliberately. His disciples have just had this little episode with the tree. Now he comes in Jerusalem and he just starts wreaking havoc. He's tipping tables. It, one gospel says that he makes a whip and he's chasing these money changers and those that are selling animals out with whips. This is a, this is a strong response from Jesus. Let me talk about what's, so what's happening here. First of all, this temple that he enters into, this is not Solomon's temple that we read about like in Chronicles. This is a temple that Solomon's temple was destroyed. It got rebuilt. And this is now what we would call Herod's temple. Okay? So Herod's temple had encompassed 1.5 million square feet of Jerusalem. This is, not a, this is not a small little building. This is a whole complex. 1.5 million square feet. It, it took up about one-sixth of the footprint of Jerusalem. It took 46 years from the time that the foundation was laid to the time they said, okay, that's complete, 46 years, okay? Here's an illustration of what it looked like. And I know you can't read all of the fine print around that, the, the diagram. But what I did is I highlighted this, this courtyard in yellow. Okay, that, see that part of this yellow? I highlighted that because that's what's known as the, the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles is the only place in the whole complex where non-Jews could come to pray, to seek God, to worship. This is the only place. But seeking God there had become impossible because the court of the Gentiles had been turned into a, what was like a typical bazaar area with buyers and sellers everywhere. And here's the, the, there was a legitimate need. The need for money changers was that you had pilgrims coming from all over the known world that came with their local currency and they needed to exchange their currency into what was being used in Jerusalem. So, so that they could function and so they could pay the temple tax and things like that. So they needed money changers and they needed people to sell animals because they, they were coming and part of what they were going to do during Passover was offer a sacrifice. But to bring a sacrifice from home, it would probably get blemished somewhere along the way. So it was easier to just buy it there. So they need that. But the court of the Gentiles had become filled with that. Have you ever been to an open market in a developing world, developing nation? Think about the environment in open market. Here's a picture of Indonesia. 
Andrea and I spent three years in Southeast Asia. We lived in Southeast Asia. We went to a lot of open markets in our time. This is just a, a shot of Indonesia. You can find almost anything you want there. And you can find somebody who will give you a good deal. Friend, friend, come over here. Special deal for you, right? You always get that kind of interaction. And it's, and it's very chaotic because the people are pulling on each other. And so you can find anything you want except for peace. Does that look like a prayerful environment? where you can just pause and dial down and worship the creator? No. Or think about, in our own nation, the, the New York Stock Exchange. Think about the environment on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. It's a, I've never been there, but I've seen it in lots of movies. And it seems like it's pretty traumatic. It seems like it's pretty volatile, right? There's people like yelling and shouting, and we've got a picture of it. There it is. Again, for what it is, it's fine as a place of worship to seek God, to pray. Probably not. The issue is not that they had places for currency exchange and had animal, for animal purchase. It's where it was happening. And the environment that it created in the only place where foreigners could come to pray and to seek God. Again, this is the only place in the temple complex where foreigners could come to worship and to seek God. Back in the temple, Jesus explained his actions. He said, as he was teaching, and he was teaching them after he cleansed the temple, he said, he was saying to them, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. See the little callback there? The disciples heard him curse the fig tree. This time he's saying something. He's, he's pronouncing judgment on the temple. And the religious establishment heard it. In fact, this is going to be why they crucify him. They were seeking for a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went back out of the city. The word robbers that Jesus used there indicates that it's not just the matter of the fact that they were selling them and had filled all the court of the Gentiles with that type of environment, which they could have done that outside the, the temple walls. The issue is also the fact that they were making an exorbitant profit on it. They were leveraging the fact that these people were coming who had need and they were making an exorbitant profit on it. The profit margins on their currency exchange and on the animals they were selling, they were taking advantage. And as for the segregation that was happening inside the temple complex, that was never God's plan either. You know, God gave them the plans for the tabernacle, which was basically a, a, a temple that would move with them when they, when they traveled. The Israelites traveled in the wilderness. They had a tabernacle that would go with them. And then when they got to the promised land, they, they made it solid. They made a temple. God gave them the plans for both, and it never included a court of the Gentiles to keep people separated. That goes against the very heart of why God called them to be a people in the beginning. If you go back to Genesis 12, to the very foundations of the people of Israel, God calls Abram, and he says, Abram, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Israel had a very special place in God's heart and in God's plan, but it wasn't supposed to stop with them. They were supposed to experience God's blessing and then extend it to the whole world. And there was never supposed to be a separation of the court of the Gentiles. This is what biblical historic, historian Craig Keener says this. He said, in the Old Testament, 
the only separation in the temple was between the priests and the people. It was a, a teaching thing that told them there was some sort of separation that needed to be dealt with. But the only separation was between the priesthood and the people. In Jesus' day, the temple was also segregated by race and by gender for purity reasons. With Jewish women on a lower level outside of the court of Israel and non-Jews in the outermost court, Jesus shows his concern for Gentiles and foreigners, and he protests racial segregation inside of a religious institution. So what just happened? From a distance, the temple system seems to be promising and healthy. The temple was thriving during Passover. People were coming from everywhere. People that typically were, were only online, they were never on campus. They're all there because it's Passover. So it looks so exciting. There's, every chair is filled, right? It looks promising from a distance, but upon closer inspection, when Jesus comes in and looks at it that night, he says, there's no fruit here. Upon closer inspection, it was fruitless. Its very purpose thwarted by human motives, by human systems, and by human agendas. Jesus judges it to be fruitless and being set aside, not just temporarily, but permanently. In the same way that he said to the fig tree, may no one ever eat from you again, when he pronounces judgment on the temple system, it's permanent. And so if that is being permanently set aside, and why? Because it wasn't an ornament to the nations, it was an obstacle to the nations. The people of Israel, as in experiencing God's goodness and God's favor and God's, God's very character being revealed to them, were supposed to share that with the nations. They were supposed to be an ornament to who God is. And instead, they're, they're an obstacle. But if that system is being permanently set aside after some 1,400 years of being the model, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple in the promised land, if that was being set aside, what's it being replaced with? What, what, what's a better option? We'll circle back to that in just a moment. Close with this, Mark eleven twenty. They passed by in the morning, as they passed by in the morning, so now they're coming back into Jerusalem a third day. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Formerly, it was in leaf, and now it's been withered to the very root. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Fig tree is withered to its roots just 24 hours after Jesus cursed it in his enacted parable. As for the cleansing of the temple, we can see that it's also an enacted parable. Like the cursing of the fig tree, what Jesus does in the temple, that's a parable because it, it actually doesn't disrupt everything. As soon as Jesus leaves, we can be sure those merchants reset their tables and resumed the selling and the exchanging of money. Right? So it, it was an inactive parable for what was about to come. When we get to chapter 13 in a few weeks, we're going to see Jesus speak to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That's pending. It won't happen until, it'll happen in about one generation, in AD 70. That'll happen. So we're not going to go there today, but the temple was being set aside. Make no mistake. The passage then closes with Jesus giving a reminder to Peter and the others about what he's already taught them about prayer. If you go in, and we're not going to keep reading in, in Mark 11, but if you were, you'd find Jesus giving them a teaching about prayer. It's, it's, it's just reminders of things that he's already said in other places, but Peter's shocked by the power of his prayer. Peter's like, you prayed against the tree and it, and it withered. Oh, like, well, Peter, you've seen lots of stuff. <laughs> Remember? As we come to the end of this passage, we're going to circle back to what it means that Jesus 
found the temple upon closer inspection to be fruitless. Pronounced judgment upon that. With what would it be replaced? I want to look at a few scriptures written on the other side of Jesus' resurrection. Just three key ones to, to start with. Paul writes in Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that you, do you not know that you are now God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That is a you that is both singular and plural. He's talking to the church. He's saying, you are the temple. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. In Ephesians 2, he says, In whom, meaning in Christ Jesus, the whole structure, and this is where you see just how, how corporate this is, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. If God's spirit no longer dwells in a tabernacle, which it never did, it was symbolic. The, temple was, the tabernacle was always symbolic that God wanted to meet with people, that heaven wanted to touch earth. But if it's no longer contained to a tabernacle or eventually to a temple, then what it is, it contained, it's contained in people. The temple model was set aside at Jesus' resurrection in exchange for portable temples, mobile temples, people filled with God's presence and power and sent to carry his image to the world for the sake of others. Why does the church exist? It's for the sake of others. Why was Jesus so angry at what he saw? Why did he pronounce judgment? Because the people who contained them, who had the message, were actually an obstacle to others hearing the message. Which brings us to some application questions. I, I hope you have caught this. I don't, I've, I don't think I've ever said this, but I don't know if you've caught this. I no longer talk about when we gather on Sunday mornings as us coming to church. Because this building is not the church. It's our campus. I'm very deliberate. I, I say some of us are gathering on campus, some of us are gathering online. I never say some of us are gathering for church, some of you are watching from a distance. Because the building... It's not the church. We are the church. This is our campus, and it's very special. I love what happens here. In, some, in many ways, this is sacred ground because lives have been transformed here. And God planted us here in a, in a miraculous way that, that if you come to one of our, our, uh, our meet and greets, well, not our meet and greet, but actually the class that follows that, we tell the story of miraculously how God placed us here. So this is, this is a special thing, but make no mistake, it's not the temple. We are the temple. I am the temple. You are the temple. We are the temple. God's spirit dwells within us. And that's what Jesus made possible through his death and resurrection. After his resurrection, the spirit was poured out. And Jesus made clear to his disciples, he said, after, the, after I, uh, when three days I'm raised, I, the temple will be set aside. The temple will be destroyed, meaning the earthly temple. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. That brings me to some, to some application questions for us to consider. I want to ask the worship team to come back. And um, as we close today, we're going to do a couple things. I'll just kind of telegraph this, this final moments here. I want to give us a few questions to just sit with. And so literally, I'm not going to ask you to stand. You know, sometimes in these moments, you know, let's all stand if you can. I think we just need to sit with these questions and allow God's Spirit to search our hearts, to know our thoughts.
And after we've done that, then we, we have two points of prayer today that are pretty special, that are unique to this morning. Let me just read those questions. First of all, if we are individually and corporately the temple of the Holy Spirit, what does Jesus see when he inspects us? If we invite the, the Spirit, using the, the language of Psalm 139, when we invite the Holy Spirit to search us and to know our hearts, to try us and know our thoughts, to consider the fruit of our lives, the fruit of our lives as his temple, what does he see? Are we bearing fruit that is for his glory and for the sake of others? Or is it just the appearance of religion? Church, I don't want to be a church that just looks like it's promising from the outside. A church that looks busy with, you know, lots of people, lots of green leaves. I long for us to be a church that bears fruit. One aspect of that fruitfulness is the way that we carry Jesus' name in our world. That we follow not a, the king of the Hummer, but the king of the humble donkey who laid down his life for others out of self-sacrificial love. We must be motivated by love. Does the world need change? Do we, do we long for the world to be made different? Yes, we do. And it doesn't happen using the tools of the world. not our place to answer those questions ourselves. I'm going to let you, let you off the hook a little bit. You don't get to answer that question. When Jesus comes to look at us, what does he see? It's not for us to answer. It is for us to open ourselves to his searching, to his shaping, to use the language of Robert Mulholland, to, to allow his conviction and his consecration. And know this, Whatever God sees, and we are not complete. There's things, that, there's things that I think God would say that we're doing really well. He would say, well done, good and faithful servants. And there's other stuff that he would put his finger on and say, this needs to change. This, and it's that place where change is needed that we're distorting God's image. And so we, we don't want to hide behind the things we're doing well. I love who we are as a church. I love what we do in the community but let's not hide behind the things we're doing well and miss the things where we need to, to change, to be transformed. So with all eyes closed, let's just ask God to search us. Holy Spirit, our hearts are capable of, of self-deception. We're not able to judge ourselves but you are a God who comes and you see all. You see our blind spots. You see what, what is hidden to us or what we try to hide from others. And Lord, because you are so extravagantly loving, it's, it's safe to allow you to see us. Because when you lay your, your finger on those places of our lives, individually in our lives together, it's not for judgment, it's for healing. That you gave your life to empower us to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Moving with your presence and your power into our world. 
searches and know us. I think this is a question we need to sit with not just for a few moments today, but actually in a daily way. Individually and together. We're talking about what it might look like for us to be a church for the sake of others. I heard two stories recently that illustrate just one way this can look. This is a fun story. If you feel, I don't know, this is kind of a heavy morning be encouraged. This comes from our pantry team. This comes from Julie specifically. She said, hey, Zach, I didn't see you when I left pantry today, but I thought I would email you to tell you what happened. I wasn't sure I was going to make it today, but apparently I was meant to be there. I checked in the final car for the day, and it was a lady that I know I've seen before. I chatted with her, and I told her she was welcome to come out to our free shelves. And she got out of her car. She sort of groaned, and she said that She twisted her leg or something and and now was having a great deal of sciatic pain. We started talking. We started walking toward the outside things and I could see that she was favoring her right side, not so much limping and trying to walk, but she was trying to walk with the least amount of pain. She was telling me how much it hurt. She asked if I'd ever had sciatica because it was awful. In one of those fleeting moments where half a dozen things flip through your head, I thought, well, yes, I have had sciatica. Should I tell her my healing story? Will she believe it? Does it matter if she believes it? It's true. So I gave her an extremely short version of my story and I said, yes, I was dealing with sciatica a few years ago and one night went to a meeting at church. It was a worship night. I got prayed for and I started to feel an ache that was different. I'm convinced to this day that it was God realigning the vertebrae and putting things back in place. The next day it was gone and has never been back. Her eyes got wide and she said, when's the next meeting like that? Pause. Pause. Time out. Next meeting is November 10th, a week from this Wednesday. We're having a night of worship and prayer. And I want to invite, I think that needs to be a night of worship and prayer and fasting. Pastor Jesse and I have been talking about this this week. And we just want to invite the church to fast on behalf of our city, on behalf of how we carry God's name in our world, that we would be a people who truly are the temple of the Holy Spirit, going out in in God's presence, God's power, God's love. We would carry his name that way. So you'll hear more about that, but, but November 10th. Her eyes got wide. She said, when's the next meeting like that? And at that moment, the only thing that I thought to say was that I didn't know, but I could pray for her if she wanted. She said, okay. So we stopped. I put my hand on her shoulder and prayed. It wasn't anything elaborate, and it probably didn't follow the prayer model. I just restated what I knew about God and that he could do it again. What you did before, come and do once more. I just restated what I knew about God and he could do it again. And I asked that things be put into alignment for her as well. We started to walk again. And as we did, she turned to me and exclaimed that her leg felt better already. I hadn't asked her how it felt. She kept saying that it really did. And I honestly thought that she was walking straighter. She was thanking me for what I did. And I kept telling her it wasn't me. 
She looked through one of the boxes of produce, bent down to pick up some things, and as she stood up, she looked at me and said that she hadn't been able to bend down and now she could. She was slightly teary and she just kept saying she felt so much better and kept saying thank you. I can only conclude that God blessed her and she received healing. Praise God, Julie. Isn't that awesome? Ralph sent me a story just yesterday about somebody at the pantry that had a similar situation. He said, it's a good day at the pantry today. I prayed for a lady with severe back pain. She got a surprised look on her face, moved around a little and then said, it's gone. Saw her again about 20 minutes later. She was still crying and praising God. That's how we're called to be a church for the others. Not just like that. That's what we would call a power encounter. But there's also loving encounters, generosity encounters, loving our enemy encounters. There's all kinds of ways that we can move out into the world that are all about carrying God's name and his character faithfully. That's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. As we close this morning, we're going to do one thing. We're going to pray for, uh, we have a current group of students that are in our School of Kingdom Ministry. I have, in fact, I'll invite you guys to come on down. If you're, if you're here on campus, if you'd come down and just gather here. I want to celebrate what God's doing with this group of students. Um, these are students that are in, for this calendar school year, beginning in September, have committed to um, a School of Kingdom Ministry where they're learning theologically and practically how to pay attention to what God is doing and to step out in faith and see that happen. How to be like Julie, who simply says, this is what God did for me, and I believe he can do it for you. And so um, this is our first class. We, we believe this is the first of many, the first fruits of many. But can we just celebrate that? The class has only been meeting for like six weeks. We're already seeing fruit from that because we're, we're called to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. But we, we, we learn how to do that. We learn how to be attentive, how to pay attention to what God's doing and step out in faith and see him do what only he can do. And so would you join me in praying over these students? And here's what I want to pray. I want to pray that what God is doing in them, he will do in us and in our city. In the same way that, that Julie shared a story of what God did in her and it rippled out to somebody else, that what he'd done in her, she could give away. We're going to pray that they, what God does in them, that, that it, would, it would affect all of us. And it would go out from there into the world. So Lord Jesus, I, I thank you for this is fruit. This is a people who are attentive and open to you and, and making sacrifices of their time and their resources to come and say, God, would you teach us how to be your people in this world, how to be your temple, carrying your presence and your power, moving out in faith and in hope and in love. God, I pray that what you're doing in them, that it would be completed and that you will cause it to not only ripple out in their lives and in their households, but to our whole church, to this family, and not only to this family, but to the whole world, to our city, to our world. We ask for supernatural encounters like what Julie had, just in the natural course of her life, that if she had a chance to share a conversation with somebody, that you rippled it out, you did it again. And so we ask that you would do it again. What you're doing, we say, yes, Lord, we give you an unqualified yes. Blank check. Anything you want, that's what we ask for. 
and then do it again and again and again and again. While we long to see the, the fullness of your kingdom, we ask for more ripples, more down payments, more first fruit. In Jesus' name, for your glory, for our joy, and for the sake of our world. Amen. Amen. Can we, can we celebrate that? All right. One last thing, and I'm going to formally dismiss. I know uh, we're, we're out of time, and so I want to formally dismiss, and if you need to go, you're blessed to do that and pick up kids and grab lunch, whatever you need to do. But this team is here to pray for you today. And from now on, when I invite the ministry team, it's going to include the School of Kingdom Ministry because they are fresh, they are open, and they're attentive, and they're, and they're learning um, how to cooperate with what God's doing. So we're going to put some words for prayer up on the screen. These are things that our team sensed this morning that God wanted to do in our midst, needs that he wanted to address. It's not comprehensive. You may not see your need up there, but if you would like God to touch your life, I want you to invite you to come up and, and receive prayer. Guys, if you would just kind of fan out. And, um, and I'll say this, here's the thing. Whatever God does in you, you are a steward of that, just like Julie was. And whatever he does in you, you, you go out in faith and you share it with other people when God provides an opportunity. You don't have to force it. It'll happen. But that's our commitment. Say, God, would you touch us so that we can share you with others? Amen? Amen. Go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.